Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, is what we'll be looking at today. Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Just as an encouragement, uh, this is a personal preference. If you are willing and able, keep your Bible open, even as we go through the text. Uh, I think um, there are some people who are great at um, maintaining people's attention and things like that. My goal is to actually turn your eyes back to the text so that we'll think it through and study together. So even after we read it, even after we pray, please feel free to keep it there open in front of you that the Spirit would work in all of our hearts together. Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism. They replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. And hearing this, they were baptized in the name of Jesus, the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about twelve men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took his disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this journey that Paul took to Ephesus and how he prioritized the preaching of the gospel, but also how he prioritized the discipleship of those who would lead that church. God, as we examine this text today, as we think to our congregational meeting to come as we think about the baptism of young camp. God, I pray that you would prioritize in our minds and our hearts the importance of raising up the next generation, what discipleship looks like. Father, we thank you for the people who came before us, who taught us how to do things, who showed us, who did it with us, who helped pick us up when we messed up terribly. We thank you most of all For your son, Jesus Christ, through whom we are made part of the church. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who daily intercedes for us. We thank you that we can call you Father. God, I pray that you'd get me out of the way. I pray that what we look at today, what is heard, would be your words. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Keep your finger in Acts and turn to Matthew 28. It's a, it's, a, it's a famous passage, Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20. You probably already have it memorized. But it's, it's usually whenever a missionary comes, that's what they read, or if you're having a missions conference. And it starts with, Go ye therefore. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. What's amazing is today we're fulfilling several parts of this. But this is one of those verses where grammar matters. You say, John, I quit grammar in school and I've not thought about it since. Stick with me for just a second. If you look at this verse, there are three participles. Going, baptizing, and teaching. Those are three participles, so it's describing what you're doing. There's only one imperative, only one command. That's make 
disciples. So the idea is, while you're going, make disciples. And the way you do that is by baptizing and teaching. But make disciples is the imperative. That's the thing you have to do. You are called to do. That we are called to do as the church. But it's also one of those things that takes a lot of work. It takes time. Sometimes even decades. Sometimes even a lifetime. But we are called to do it as Christians. The apostles were called to do it. The success of the church depends on that command. Make disciples. And that's what we're looking at today. Because God uses discipleship to develop His church, we should actively train and be better trained to serve. And what we're going to be looking at today is there's two steps to that. First, we have to have committed our lives to Jesus Christ in the first place. We have to have realized our lives are not our own. They need to belong to Christ. We need His forgiveness. But the thing about a Christian life is not just about a thing that you did at a revival one day and that's it. It's a lifestyle. It's a commitment that we do daily. And that's what discipleship is. The context of this passage, uh, we've been looking through the book of Acts for what now? Four months? Um, we've gotten, what we're looking at, what we're focusing on is Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Last week we talked about how he visited Ephesus. His ship just made a stop over to get gas. Just kidding, it wasn't gas. Um, and he jumped off and came and spoke at the synagogue, um, and he promised them. They welcomed him. They loved what he had to say, and he promised. He said, I will return if God's will. But who is it that stayed? Do you remember the couple that stayed? Aquila and Priscilla, and they stayed. And there's another man who came to Apollos who, who was preaching the gospel, but they actually invited them into their home. They wined and dined him and showed him how he could teach the Word of God more accurately. And we saw that even from the beginning, even from its inception, the church grew because of the families of the church. He was a family who was committed. So Apollos then goes from Ephesus to Corinth. But we're focusing on the city of Ephesus. So while, if you look at verse 1, while Apollos was at Corinth, so this traveling preacher takes off and goes to Corinth, Paul is traveling. And, and you, do you remember I, I showed you a map and how Paul usually sort of made a big circle on his missionary journey. We're on his third missionary journey. And he's coming back to Ephesus and he shows up to this port city. It's one of the biggest cities in this Asia, in this area of Asia Minor. And the first thing that we see in verses 1 through 7 is the importance of discipleship. If you look there, it says that he found some disciples. The word disciple just means a learner, a pupil, someone who's teachable. One of the most valuable things I ever learned from sports, um, kind of skinny, so I was never, you know, the real good guy. Um, but my coaches said the most important thing in a player is someone who's teachable who's willing to get rid of their bad habits, a person who's willing to hustle, a person who's willing to listen. Think about your job. If you're going to hire somebody, it, you can teach somebody how to do something, but if they don't have that attitude of being teachable, it's almost impossible to show them anything. And here, what he's looking at when he finds these disciples, these are people who are willing to listen. These were people who were teachable. And yet, they did not have theological precision. There was something they didn't know. What is it that they didn't know? They didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. And so, Paul, this is really important. This is a big deal. And so he talks to them about the Holy Spirit. I want us just to consider, oftentimes the Holy Spirit is something that kind of falls by the wayside, that we don't talk about, especially as Presbyterians, because it makes us nervous. Like, does this mean that we're going to be doing anything weird in here? John, what are you doing? What's amazing, you find the Holy Spirit throughout the Scriptures. Genesis 1, verse 2. We have, we've all memorized Genesis 1, 1. What's the very next verse? Now the earth was formless and empty. The darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. Think about when man was created. What did they say? Let us 
make man in our own image. In the book of Judges, it talks about how the Spirit of the Lord came upon the judges when David was anointed. It said that the Spirit of God rushed upon him. In Isaiah chapter 61, he promises that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and opening the prison to those who are bonded. And what's amazing is Jesus in the book of Mark comes and speaks those exact words and says the Spirit is upon him. In the New Testament, every time Christ is baptized, you hear about the Spirit descending like a dove. In the book of Luke, it talked about, and we're celebrating this at Christmas, Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Before he goes into the desert to be tempted, it said the Spirit moved him to go to the desert, to the wilderness. And what's beautiful, in the book of Acts, God promises, sorry, Christ promises that the Holy Spirit will come upon his disciples. And in the entire book of Acts, the Spirit comes up 56 times. This is so important. And that's why when these disciples, they didn't even know that the Spirit of God was there, Paul realized this is really important. We need to understand what the Holy Spirit does. So let me ask you, do you? We say in our creed, I believe in the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Romans chapter 8, this is what it says. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, when we don't even know what to pray for, the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with words that cannot, that with words, with groans that words cannot express. And He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. Did you know that the Holy Spirit right now is praying for you? What comfort! I mean, it's great comfort to know that someone else is praying for us. The Holy Spirit is doing so. Think about the Nicene Creed. We just quoted the Apostles' Creed. The Nicene Creed says that we believe in the Holy Spirit of the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, He is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. These disciples needed to be corrected and taught about the Holy Spirit. We need to know what the Holy Spirit is doing so that we can know God better. God with us. When we think about Emmanuel... Christ came and lived among us. But what did he say when he ascended into heaven? He said, I will send a comforter. Who is that comforter? The Holy Spirit. Before anyone preaches a sermon, they commit it to the Holy Spirit that he would open our eyes and our hearts. We need God to understand his word. We cannot do it on our own strength. And so they're corrected. Also notice that they had, there was this distinction in baptism in verses 4 to 5. This is... The only time in the entire Bible that rebaptism is mentioned in the Bible. So I wrestled with this one. I got to be honest. I was sitting up there and I was thinking, maybe I could just skip over it and no one will notice. But that's not what we're allowed to do. Um, it's, it's the only time it's mentioned. If you remember last week, Apollos was corrected because he also only knew the baptism of John, but it doesn't talk about how he was rebaptized. It, the baptism of John was, it was his call for people to repent. But here what Paul is doing, and he shows the need not only to repent, but to turn away from our sin, and turn away from our sin, but also to follow after Christ. We talked about this distinction last week, but feeling guilty for something wrong you've done isn't enough. Yeah, it's good. It's good to feel guilty. I just stole a cookie from the cookie jar. I shouldn't have done it. I'm so sorry. But if you just feel bad about it, and that's all you do, have you actually made it right? If you just feel bad for it, if you don't apologize, if you don't make restitution, if you don't go fix things, and I'm talking about a cookie jar because it's something small, but do we make things right? That's what this is calling us to do, not just to repentance, not just to feel bad for our sin, but to turn from our sin, to walk the other way, to commit ourselves to follow after Jesus Christ. So when they're baptized in the name of Jesus, it was them committing themselves. From now on, I will follow after Jesus Christ. 
This is not a call to rebaptism, but to faith in Christ. They had never committed themselves to the Savior. In Ephesians 4, chapter 5, it talks about how we have one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God. You need to be baptized out of obedience. Not salvation, but out of obedience towards it. And that's one of the reasons that we look so joyously to Robert Camp's baptism. He has taken on the seal of the triune God. And this is that first step, a commitment. We're asking God to commit to him. And we ask you to commit to him and his parents to commit to him. It's a beautiful sign. It's a beautiful covenant. Further on, if you look at verse 5, after Paul shows them you need to be baptized, what do they do? They do it. In verse 5, you see them doing it immediately. If you remember the Ethiopian, they're riding along in the chariot, and he sees water, and he's like, what's going to stop me from doing it right now? What's amazing is these, these early believers, as soon as they heard that they needed to do something, they didn't wait until it was more convenient. They didn't wait until the New Year so they could put it on their New Year's resolution. They did it right away. They jumped towards obedience. And, and this demonstration of communion with God, verses 6 and 7, sort of describes how the Holy Spirit evidences His presence through signs in miracles, these, these, this, what it says there that they spoke in tongues and they prophesied. If, we, if you remember in chapter 1 where we talked about how when the Holy Spirit descended in Pentecost, the evidence of it, the proof of it, was that there were signs and there was miracles happening. This was proof that the Holy Spirit was there amongst them as described in the book of Acts. What's amazing is that same Spirit that was with them is with us today. That same Spirit that, was pray, that is praying for us today, according to Romans 8, was interceding for them. Why? Because God remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's unchangeable. Also, I want you to notice the continuity of discipleship. Truly, not only are, are they called to be disciples, but they're called to be disciple makers. And here's what that distinction means. Yes, it's fine for me to teach somebody how to do something. But how do I ensure that that person will teach the next person? Not only by teaching them how to do it, but by teaching them how to teach. Does that distinction make sense? We're called not just to show somebody uh, how to serve in the church, but also how to train up others to serve in the church. Not just discipleship, but disciple makers. What's amazing here is that Paul speaks boldly, which is distinctive in the book of Acts, and he makes an argument. He's organized, he's clear, he's logical, he's linear, and showing how Jesus Christ, who Jesus Christ was, However, in the clarity of his speaking, whereas in the prior chapter, whenever he spoke, people were excited about it. And they said, oh, this is incredible. This time he comes and they kick him out. There's opposition. What's amazing here, the word obstinate there in verse 9 actually means to harden. And it's in the middle voice. So what it means is they hardened themselves. It wasn't an external thing that happened or that they were already hard. They decided, they chose to harden themselves. And they spoke ill of the way. Notice that in verse 9. Remember, what was, how are Christians described throughout the book of Acts? They were followers of the way. What is it that we know about Jesus Christ? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Also, <laughs> he shows creative perseverance in teaching. And when he can't teach in the synagogue, which is where the Jews had come, would come together, he moves to the hall of Tyrannus, which is likely just a school or a teaching area. What's also amazing, in a Western manuscript tradition, it says that he was there from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. So he worked, the idea is, and Paul, wherever he went, he was a, he was a, a tent maker. And so what he, the idea is, he worked in the morning, and then he preached in the afternoon, and yet somehow he made enough to live. But this was constantly, for him, the preaching was one of the most important parts 
This wasn't just, this wasn't his main job. He didn't, this was part of his everyday life. He was committed to preaching the gospel, and so he structured the rest of his life around how do I communicate the truth of God's gospel to these other people. If we say, well, I have a job, John. I don't have time to share the gospel. We all need to share the gospel. That is our purpose as Christians. We need to disciple. God has placed people in your life to whom you can speak truth. We are called to do it. You're also called to seek people to disciple you. There are people that God has placed in your life. And sometimes it takes years to find out who they are. That are a couple steps ahead of you that can show you how to live. That's what we're called to do in the Christian life. What's amazing is that he's with these disciples and it describes how there were 12 of them and he's teaching them and he's teaching them, he's teaching with them there and he's showing them how to evangelize by them doing it. And he's there for two years. It's sort of like learning a trade. We, one of the ministries that we, we do several ministries here in the church, Kids Night, one of, the, one of my favorites though is Good News Club. We go and, and have been teaching at the schools and, and I gotta be honest, when you go for the first couple times, it just seems like organized chaos. Um, there's kids running around. It's, ah. What's amazing is when you sit down and you do a lesson, a lot of these kids don't get a chance to hear the gospel anywhere else or any other time. And this past time, they were giving a definition of prophecies and all the different... Miss, Miss Diane, she's not here. I can't embarrass her. Fine. Um, she's in the nursery. Um, oh, there she is. This past week, we were, she was defining what prophecy was. And, and the kids were talking about the different prophecies that had been given about, about how Jesus would be trade for 30 coins and how he was led like a lamb. And they were descri- there were things that I'd even forgotten, but you know they were listening so carefully. And what's amazing is not only are we teaching the children, but she's teaching other people how to teach those lessons to make sure that you know if, if, if there's that weekend that we cannot be there, the ministry will go on. And we, we are called to do this in every area of our ministry, not just to do the ministry, but to teach others how to do it, show them how to do it. And we see that's exactly what Paul does for two years. For two years, he shows them how to do it. And so the word of God spreads. Look at what it says in verse 10. To all Asia. Now you would think, oh, come on, there's no way. Well, first of all, Asia was talking about Asia Minor. But here's what's amazing. It seems that not only Paul, but Paul and these 12 disciples did just that. If you look at Revelation chapter 2 through 4, John writes to the churches of Asia. And each one of those churches is within a 30-mile radius of guess what city? Ephesus. The gospel went forth to those churches so that by the time John the Apostle writes the book of Revelation, not only have they heard, but churches have been established in these places. Not only did these 12 share the gospel, but they established churches there. In the following verses, in the rest of chapter 19, you see uh, there's, there's, gonna, there's, there's opposition, there's a riot. Uh, for a while they want to kill Paul. But what's amazing is there's evidence not only of church growth, but of church leadership that rose up. In chapter 20, which we're going to look at next week, uh, um, I broke the secret, I'm sorry. Uh, in chapter 20, uh, Paul addresses the elders of Ephesus. And you see not only an established church, but an established leadership. Even in the midst of difficult times, in the midst of riots, discipleship remained a priority. And if you read the book of First and Second Timothy, he was a pastor of Ephesus. If you look at the slave Onesimus from the book of Philemon, who was later freed according to church tradition, he became a pastor of Ephesus. And later in life, the apostle John, 
became a pastor of the church of Ephesus. There's a story where uh, before, before the persecution, he's there as the pastor of the church of Ephesus. And then the Apostle John uh, is taken away. But there's a young man who, who really is learning a lot about the gospel. And so John, you know, with the pastor that, that's there, he says, take care of this young man. I will return. So John goes. He's persecuted. He's, according to church tradition, all, they aren't able to kill him. So they put him in exile. When Domitian, the, the emperor, passes away, John comes back from exile, and he comes back to this bishop, to, the, to, this, to this pastor, to this man, and says, where's that young man? And the guy says, look, I'm sorry. Uh, he became a thief, and now he's a highway robber. And what does the apostle John do? Even though he's in his 80s, he goes out and looks for this, this young man. And when he finds him, the young man starts running away. And it describes John. It says that John chased him as though he'd forgotten his age. And he, he, he calls to him, and he says, why are you afraid of me? And he reminds him of the commitment that this young man had made to faith. And that day, that highway robber becomes a believer, even though it's later in life. Each of these pastors, through their life, were committed to the discipleship of the church. And if you read the book of Ephesians, that's what should be in the background. That's what you should be understanding. This commitment to discipleship. It's so important. It's the survival of the church that's at stake. Discipleship for the leadership of the church. Paul came back, he focused on leadership, and the church was educated by its families, Priscilla and Aquila and these 12 disciples. And they were chosen in charge to serve and protect the church. When you become a member of the church, when you become an elder or deacon, you promise to promote the unity, the peace, the purity, and the prosperity of the church. Bless you. But today, during the election process, at the end of this service, we are going to have the election process. We are selecting those who have been discipled, those who are actively doing the jobs of elder. The very minimum is someone who is an active member, not a disciple, not new converts, but is showing clear evidence of God's calling. The way we do the process here is, first, there's a nominating committee. The session comes together and and sends out a list of eligible members. Then the congregation gives suggestions. Here's the deal. In prior years, we've had about 15 to 20 votes. This year, we had 31. That's better. But I want you to look around you at how many people we have here. We should have more than 31. Your voices matter. Your voices really matter. Because then after this, the certification committee, one of the requirements is we need to go to those people and see if they're willing and able to serve. And as much as we are able, we follow the list of nominations that you, the congregation, Gives. We follow the list as it is given. And what we have to do according to our book of worship is we have to go to them and make sure that they're willing and able to serve. For the position of elder, today, later when we are voting, there's, there's four spots that are filled. We approached eight different people. Four of them said they were not able to do it, sometimes because of health, health difficulties of themselves, someone else, sometimes the requirements and responsibilities. But I want you to realize that we followed through their list. There was people that are simply, that are so qualified and have done it in years past, but cannot do it today. Same with the position of deacon. There were people who were approached who were not able to do it. And not only do we need to respect it, but even according to 1 Timothy chapter 5, we need to be willing and able to serve. But again, I remind you, is the church in the hands of its people? Does its future depend on us? Thank the Lord, no. Depends on the Lord. And we truly believe that God has raised up elders and deacons to fulfill these posts. And so our task, our responsibility today when we vote is to elect officers. And if there's only one nomination for officer, their name will be presented and then we will vote. That is what is about to happen. But I wanted you to know the process that we go through. We do not take this lightly. We think your nominations are so important.
But we also, and thankfully, people have recognized the great responsibility to be an elder, to be a deacon, takes so much time. It takes these men away from their families. It means they have responsibilities. Another thing, you carry the feeling of failure with you always because you know how large the load is and there's so little that we are able to do. And yet that is what God has called us to do. So my encouragement to you, once your elder is elected, when we have done that, pray for your elders and deacons. And I mean that. Pray for them daily. We need it. Not just for the decisions, but think about what we talked about discipleship today. This is the raising up of the future of the church, the future leaders. Also respect the office. What's amazing is it's so easy. Um, (laughs) They're going to make mistakes. Lots of them. We taught on uh, Ephesians chapter 5, and there's that, there's, there's that really diff, er, yeah, there, that difficult word, submit. It's easy to submit. Well, it's not easy to submit to Christ. It's easy to want to submit to Christ because he's perfect. Many times it comes with submitting to one another. It's, ugh, you have no idea what he's like at home. We're called to submit to our elders. But lastly, in, in remembering that they're just people and they're fallen and they make mistakes, I'd encourage you as a, as the church, uh, you have shown me so much grace when I mess up. You guys are so encouraging. Every time after I preach, I, I have several people come and say, oh, you've come such a long way. Uh, <laughs> you have no idea how bad it was before. You've been so gracious. My encouragement to you, when, when these men, when these women, when these teachers, when, these, when our leadership messes up, when they make a mistake, show them grace. Remember how Aquila and Priscilla, how they corrected him. How did they do it? They took him aside and did it in private. I encourage you to do that the same. And I mentioned it before, but I'll say it again. Pray for them. Prayers matter. You say, all I can do is pray. Oh my goodness, I would rather have your prayers than anything else. Please, please, please. Pray for your deacons. Pray for your elders. Next week we'll have the ordination service for these men and, and the, the reinstallation service. But, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go really hard on them. So, you know, don't you worry. But today I'm going hard on y'all. Um, in the meantime, remember that we have been taught and we are called to be teachable. So even in the midst of the voting that we're doing today, in the midst of the, the baptism, and what we are doing is we are raising up the next generation of people who will serve and who will know the Lord Let's commit that to the Lord right now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the history of the church. And we thank you for the way you provided uh, individuals throughout time to care for your church. And we pray that you would guide our decisions later today. We especially raise up to you Robert and his future. That he would know you as his personal Savior. And God, I lift up before you paisley, even as this pulpit flower reminds me, I pray that she would not know a day. She did not know the Lord, her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Pray for all our children. But also I pray for adults. And give us wisdom. Show us how to teach, how to disciple. And not just to show what to do, but most of all, that we need you. Time with Jesus Christ cannot be replaced. And I pray that we'd remember that on a daily basis. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.